This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever it is that you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. Massive thanks to Renee, who is covering for Fee this week uh, with Maps. I'm your host, Flick Ford. And I'm joined in the studio tonight by reviewer and festival programmer, Thomas Caldwell. Hey, Thomas. Hey, thanks for having me yet again. Yes, it's like it's <laughs> kind of lovely. It's been like book, like two ends of the book. What is that called? Bookcase. You know what I'm trying to say? Bookstand. Oh, I've gone blank too. <laughs> yeah. Why did we, we started strong? Book markets. <laughs> but um, we had you on, of course, to talk about the start of MIF. MIF is now come to an end, although MIF. Oh, no, it hasn't because Myth plays The Myth plays stuff the, on, yeah. The in-cinema stuff has come yep. to an end. Um, so it's lovely to have you back on the show. We're going to talk about very non-Myth films today because there are other things happening outside of, of Myth. Um, there's been heaps of new releases as well. So tonight we're going to catch up on some of those. We've got Wes Anderson's homage to 1950s space and UFO mythology, Asteroid City. And later tonight, the psychological thriller slash dark comedy Sanctuary by Zachary Wigan. Uh, I wasn't sure if that's how I pronounce his name. Wigan, we're going to go with that? Long-term listeners of this time slot who are familiar <laughs> with when I used to be regularly on will know I am not the person to ask about pronunciation. No. I so mean, I can't help you. <laughs> I feel like I'm just as bad as you, Thomas. I've carried no, that, on that, that, that flame. That, that's impossible. <laughs> Uh, but first up tonight, we're going to discuss a film that has already been billed as one of the best of the year, which is a very, you know, it's, I suppose it's, you know, almost September, so maybe it's not that wild. It is the Danish drama about a priest's pilgrimage. It's called Godland. The film is written and directed by Heiner Palmerson, who is a Danish filmmaker. Uh, the film is set in the late 19th century and it stars Elliot Crossett Hove as Lucas, a Lutheran priest from Denmark who's sent to Iceland to oversee the establishment of this new parish church in this kind of remote area, this remote village. Um, he's assigned an, an Icelandic guide, Ragnar, uh, played by Ingvar Eget Sigurdsson. Um, how am I going with my Danish? Uh, <laughs> Danish again, um, <laughs> it sounds okay to me, but yeah. I do know how to say no, no in in Danish. I don't know if you picked that up from the film. Nye. It's such nah, a yeah. it's such a uh, fantastic. <laughs> it's an easy one. And tuck. 
Tuck, yes. That's thank you. I only know that as a Sigga Ross fan, though. So, yeah. Oh, there you go. Oh, that's Icelandic. There you go. That's mm. how bad I am. Yeah, we don't want to... Although there is a lot of Icelandic it. in this film. There it's, is. Yes. And uh, English-speaking viewers will note that the subtitles... I think they used italics for this Icelandic... Uh, when people are speaking Icelandic and then they just have it as non-italicised for the Danish. Um, so Lucas, this priest, he's a keen photographer and he documents this challenging journey setting up this parish in this remote uh, region of Iceland. And at the start of the film, a title card appears which says, a box was found in Iceland with seven wet plate photographs taken by a Danish priest. These images are the first photographs of the southeast coast. This film is inspired by these photographs. Hmm. Only thing is, that's a lie. Uh, Palmerson actually made that up. Oh, that's a whole yeah. bit like Fargo or Picnic yeah. and Hanging Rock. Yeah. Oh, I was, I a, I was yep. a tiny bit disappointed, but then I was like, oh, good on you. Because <laughs> watching it, <laughs> it's it a delightful sets you idea, up. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Mm. And. Photography has such an particularly wet plate photography, which I had to look up to understand how that worked because we do see that process on film during Godland. Mm. Um, eggs, eggs on the finger. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's a really isn't it? fascinating tactile process, isn't it? Very tactile, yeah. and I think a really. Um, I suppose it could be likened to how we talk often about film and and kind of the fragility of film and the idea of, you know, going through the different um, frames. So it had a really um, obvious parallel, I, I think, to the to the making of, of film itself, but it is focusing on photography. And I just thought I, I really love that they, they did actually do some wet plate ph- photographs during the the process of making this film that oh, we right. see, yeah. yeah, and um, these photographs do appear. I'm fairly sure that they do appear in the film, or at least we see uh, filmic representations of wet plate, wet plate photographs, and uh, these moments of stillness throughout the film. And I think for me, that was perhaps the thing I love the most about Godland is these moments of pause and. And contemplation that these photographs and the passing of time allow for it really made me think about the fragility of these photos. Of course, they're made up, but they they do exist. That was a historical. That is true. Um, just they didn't find a box of them. Um, no, but, but it, there, there were photos like this from yeah, the era. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I think mm. the photo is such a fascinating object because it thinks all. It makes us think about what's not being captured, and it also made me think a lot about the kind of magic temporality of photography. It's capturing this one moment in time and you see throughout the film um, Lucas, the priest, is is posing people and there's a particularly um, uh, mischievous young girl who, who's on kind the of horse. on the horse. Isn't I, she wonderful? She is yeah. remarkable. Mm. Um, so much energy. And I, I love seeing kids on film that are acting like actual kids. They're not... Mm. You know, they're they're given characters, they're given, you know, different temperament, you know. And she's kind of loved by that community too. Like they're all very austere characters, but they're still delighted by her playfulness and nothing bad happens to her. It's not one of these films where innocence gets destroyed. You know, it's sort of just lovely seeing her at play among these deeper, heavier themes. Yes, that's so true. And I think it's a really lovely, yeah, tonal tonal shift that she allows for. 
the film itself, it's what two hours and twenty minutes, I think. So oh, I think it's yeah, it's close to maybe, two and a half, I think. Maybe two and a half. Yeah. So a real epic in mm. a lot of senses, and there's this this long um, journey that the characters take. My first thoughts were it reminded me a bit of um, Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. I, I thought of yeah. what is it, Aguirre, Wrath of God? Oh, sorry, is that the boat one? No, Have the I boat got... one's Fitz. Oh, Fitz- it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. at a moment. I was like, I got them mixed up. Well, no, they're, 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 both mm. those films I think are very similar and have mm. been referenced by this director and other journalists. I hope I pronounced that right, actually. But um, that very Hertzhogian idea, mm. if that's correct, Hertzhogian. Oh, yeah, do we say that? Yeah, yeah. Of of humans, well, men. It's normally men going on reckless missions with all the best intentions, mm. um, in their head anyway, whether it's mm. religion or colonialism. In Herzog's film, it's often colonialism. Yes. But they go into these impossible environments to sort of conquer it or bring religion to it, like in this case. Mm. Um, and they're way out of their depth. Yes. And the, the, the landscape is just, it's not necessarily hostile, it's just utterly indifferent. Mm. Um, and this definitely is a kind of Nordic variation of that. It also reminded me a lot of Silence because of the, the religious theme, I think, Scorsese's mm. Silence. Yes. Which, it's not as brutal as that, but it has that similar feel of this sort of men of God, or in this case a man of God, going into this wild wilderness. And his mm. faith, as a result, is pushed to the limit. Absolutely, and his body as well. Like his body just fails him many times. I thought it was really interesting with this because I, like, like you said, it's not as dark as Silence. In, in ter- it doesn't get as violent. No, but it does threaten it constantly. And yeah. I wasn't sure. And the threat is very much from the land itself. We have this another character in the volcano that is mentioned by, um, and we should touch one. I should pull up his name. Who is the name of um, the priest? Um, boss <laughs> that we see at the very very yes, start, he who has, has a wonderful way of describing the volcano, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, I think it's something like the, if Earth has shat itself. Yeah, that's the smell. <laughs> <laughs> the smell of the volcano. Yeah, oh, this threat of the volcano, and I uh, there's some wonderful, um, wonderful visual gags. I don't think "gag" is right, quite the right word, but it's very much sending up um, the pomp of of the priest and and these process mm-hmm. but in a way that's it's still got humanity at the core and it's it's not kind of it's not making fun of him that's not quite the right word it's it's presenting a, a priest in crisis but also in some ways masculinity in crisis yeah well again it's that kind of Herzog idea isn't mm. it of being just out of out of their depth and I'll tell you the other film it reminded me of was um Embrace of the Serpent oh yes which is probably my favorite of all yes. the films we've just mentioned yeah this sort of idea of being completely out of their depth and kind of spiraling spiraling into a type of madness that's very mm. much reflected by the, the landscape and in this it is that cold brutal indifference mm. um and I loved what you were saying about the nature of photography because this film is shot in an Academy ratio, which was mm. really fashion. This film came out, it was made and premiered last year. Yeah. And that was really fashionable last year. It was kind of getting a bit ridiculous, the number of films that were in that old, yeah. more boxy Academy <laughs> ratio. And that don't fit it as well, where you just think, what? why Some did you do it? Some just felt like a, a silly <laughs> aesthetic. This, feel, this one, it felt right. Yes. And the film very much looks like film. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I've neglected to look up what it was shot on. I'll, but I, I'll look that up while we're chatting, so keep going. Going, but you could I'm see curious. you could see hair in the gate at points. You could mm. see grain. It was if it wasn't actually shot on sixteen or thirty-five mil, it's been made. It's been processed to make it yeah. look like it has. 
And that does give it a sort of fragility and a sense of time and place. And it captures this idea of this is a representation and we're missing what's around the edges. Because quite mm. literally this film doesn't have the edges of a big widescreen film. Yeah. And... And there is so much unspoken. I mean, that, that kind of hostility and rivalry he has with the Icelandic uh, man who's there to mm. supposedly help him. Yes. And there's just this simmering contempt they have for each other. And I think that's built on, you know, th- there has been a tension between mm. Denmark and Iceland. They, they, they never spilled blood over it, but there has been a tension apparently for centuries about this. Mm. Um, and, and the priest who is meant to occupy this position of nobility just seems to absolutely loathe this kind of rough kind of man of the earth who yeah. won't, doesn't or won't speak his language. And I think mm. that's part of the crisis of faith, that he really mm. he should be this forgiving kind of <laughs> person, but he just yes. he can't. This guy just drives him crazy. Yes. Even when this guy reaches out to him, he yeah. just has this horrible contempt for him. Yes. And, and, and where that escalates and leads to also involves the landscape. Mm. There, there, are, there are moments in this film where I couldn't work out how they actually filmed it. Some of the more physical scenes mm. with characters wrestling or fighting or, and some of it gets a bit more full on. I was honestly bewildered as to how did you shoot that without doing it for real because that mm. looks horribly real. Yes. Like you yeah. must have been in so much discomfort doing that. Yeah. And, and it, you are taken on this journey and I was thinking at the start of this film, is this going to be two and a half hours of them going through this horrific wilderness? And I think actually the film is, it is that, yes, but it's actually so much more because they do get to this town. The journey is only the first half yeah, of the film. it really is. Then they and stay then, in the one spot for the second half, yeah. Yeah, and then it becomes this character study, like you mm. say, of the priest being tested and this fascinating um, conflict between Lucas and Ragnar. And I love Ragnar's performance, or Inga, uh, Inga Sigurdsson's performance. Yeah. I feel like he is exceptional because... He really shifts um, and I think there's vulnerabilities that are opened up and you just get the sense of what would it be like to have that as your life, to be living in those really harsh conditions, to be creating quite, you know, it seemed like they have quite a a lovely space in some ways. I just found that part of it really interesting and I I do think that Godland is a film that allows, it's got a lot of openness to it in that it, it doesn't, spoon feed you by any means and mm. it also allows for lots of interpretation there's a there's a there's a guide earlier a translator who's involved in the journey and i've really been deliberating i just saw the film last night i've been deliberating as to what is the relationship between I he and lucas was about to ask mm. you what you felt because i did wonder if there were the characters may not have even realised it themselves, but mm. I wondered if there was a queer subtext going on there. I read it as a as a queer relationship, which for again sure. would have tested the faith of the priest. Yeah, but um, that was one of my favourite parts of this mm. film. Actually, the kind of growing friendship, or maybe more, between these two men was yeah. was quite beautiful. It was, and mm. there's a bit of playfulness there, and we see that then later on with these two um, two sisters. There's a playfulness there, and I love, and the, and we have to mention the dog. Um, so there's a very cute dog. I always feel like I need to mention cute dogs in films, but there is a very cute dog. It's Ragnar's. It's, it's a great dog, <laughs> <laughs> and um, it won the grand grand jury canine cast Palm Dog at the. Um, I got the Palm Dog. Excellent. Well, it had to. It had to. <laughs> um, but I. I I really love I I love this film I really did um I think that it had I I loved the fact that I can't quite work it out mm. um I think that there's enough space but 
The part that I love the most is that, like I said, that that photography, um, the passing of time, the way in which they talk about the seasons in a visual sense of just showing these decaying oh, bodies. I just thought some that, of the lapse, mm, time lapse photography they yeah. do at the end, and this director does that. His other two feature films are set contemporary, but um, sorry, contemporary settings, <laughs> but they're um. They're also about the sort of mm. tormented men in the wilderness and they have this similar type of abstraction. Because, I mean, Icelandic cinema and Danish cinema is often... where well, you've got that, that kind of Nordic noir thing or it's yeah. often very quirky and surreal and comedic. This is quite different. This feels mm. more like something from Dre or Bresson or mm. uh, Tarskovsky. It's, um, it is very austere. There, there are bits that are almost completely abstract. It, is, mm. it gives you space to contemplate and... I was very much aware of its stillness and length mm. when watching it um, and wasn't too sure how I felt about mm. it. Us having this conversation now is making me love the film more and more. <laughs> and that, to me, is a sign of a remarkable piece yeah. of cinema. And yeah. and w- what I crave with a cinematic experience is it's not forgotten the moment the credits roll. It's mm. stayed with me and we can have a talk like this. Um, it's very much traditional art house cinema. Yes. Before art house became a genre to describe anything vaguely quirky or or subtitles. (laughs) You know, this is a proper alternative to the Hollywood Mm. mode of storytelling and filmmaking. And, Mm. um, and, I mean, the other thing we've got to say is it just looks so beautiful. It really does. Like, it doesn't matter if there's nothing happening in certain shots because, and you know, it's a cliche to say, yes, they're in the wilderness and they're filming on film, it's going to look beautiful. But, Mm. yeah, it really does. Yeah. And I... I uh, was thinking a bit about Herzog again, but um, the volcano footage, mm. I can never get enough volcano footage. <laughs> I just think it's beautiful. I remember watching Fire of Love. Yeah, I which, thought of that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. Herzog's shot so many, you know, he's, he's actually shot the, that couple before as well. So yep. it just sort of it seems to exist in that. But, look, I loved it. Um, can I just give you an interesting yeah. fact I just discovered from an article yeah. in Sight and Sound that Jonathan Romney has written is that the film has three different titles. It has – and you see them. It has a Danish oh, title, an Icelandic yes. title, and the English mm. – the English title is, yeah, Godland. But the other titles translate quite differently. So the Icelandic title translates as Wretched Unforgiving Land mm. and the Danish one translates as Deformed Land. Oh, that's interesting because, yeah, I had heard that the, the English title – the translation doesn't quite work and it's quite a uh it's not the most compelling title no um, it's not is it no but i hope that people do seek this out i i think it's well worth sitting with it and we did say look it is a long film but just prepare yourself for it and just sink into it because i think there's so much to explore visually orally and in the performances so i hope more people see it yeah, um, I think so. The kind of people who I think are geared to like this kind of film are yeah. going to love it. Yes. Well, Godland is playing now at Select Cinemas. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. But tonight we are catching up on some new releases that are currently screening in Australian cinemas. And our second film is possibly one of the most eagerly awaited films of the year uh, and perhaps the most stacked cast we have seen in a while. Yes. Uh, I don't even know where to begin with it. But it is, of course, Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. Um, So there are three narrative spaces in Asteroid City. We've got the first is the depiction of the Junior Stargazer Convention in this kind of retro, futuristic version of 1955. And then the second is a story staged, the story staged as a play. Mm -hmm. And then the third is the creation of the play. 
Is that right? Yeah, that works for me, yeah. <laughs> Wes Anderson's been doing this for a while now, actually, mm. this idea of stories within a story. Like nesting dolls. Yeah, it's, it's very much drawing attention to the artifice of mm. the story. It's that very Brechting idea of if you show how it's made, it somehow makes the, the message more authentic because mm. there's no attempt to disguise what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's interesting. And you're also showing all the different possibilities and the, creation, the creative decisions that go into why you do something. That's right. Um, it's like the Grand, Buddha, the Grand Budapest Hotel did this to quite an extreme and the, the French Dispatch as well. It's that's definitely... a, yeah, the French Dispatch, I think, is the most um, – I, I feel like it exists in a really similar space to this, this very meta kind of um, – well, it's just very meta. It is, and it works for Wes Anderson's style because he has, I mean, I don't think we have to really describe his style, but it's very constructed, very leans heavily into artifice. It's, you know, he stage manages everything so carefully. Mm. Uh, actors all speak in this very deliberate, stylized way. So I think yes. he's, he's sort of leaning into this even further and further now by yeah. drawing attention to the fact that it's, not, that it's a construct. Um, Actually, just to quickly get off my chest, if you're one of these people who complain that Wes Anderson films are too Wes Anderson-y, <laughs> shut up. You, you, you sound like a fool. That's, that's his thing. I think we know now that he has a, a, a shtick. Yes. I think it's wonderful that auteurs are still out there pursuing yeah, yeah. Uh, a vision. If you don't like his stuff... I reckon just cut loose now. Well, this is the difference. I think it's 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 that's a taste judgment. You know, that's a, no, no, not taste judgment. That is taste. It's not it's not a kind of critic. It's not a yeah. proper critique. Because I I I feel as though there have been times where I don't think the. Let's get into it. Hang on. Mm. First, let's go from step one. We're not we're we're not going to say if we're not going to get into that loophole, but. We've got to talk about the cast. Yeah. It's, so, yeah, wow. four Oscar winners, Adrian Brody, Tom Hanks, Fisher Stevens, Tilda Swinton, 10 Oscar nominees, Bob Balbobin. Uh, oh, I love Bob Balbobin. Um, I was on a plane with him once. Oh, really? He could not work out how to use his phone. I just watched. It was amazing. <laughs> Um, who else have we got? Steve Carell, Hong Chow, Brian Cranston, Willem Dafoe, Matt Dillon, Jeff Goldblum, Scarlett Johansson, Edward Norton, Margot Robbie. It's crazy. It is the. It is such an insane cast. And Stephen Carell playing the part that was originally written for Bill Murray because yes. Bill Murray has been a long, long member of this sort of broad Wes Anderson troupe. Yes. And if you look for it online, there is a terrific preview for the film with Bill Murray. Oh, really? Acting in the trailer <laughs> as an actor who was cut from the radio play. Oh, wonderful. So that's an awesome, again, so intertextual, yes. so meta, and it's really fun. Well, this is the first film that doesn't feature Murray out of mm. all of, uh, oh, apart from Bottle Rocket, obviously it doesn't, which is, you know. Murray's been 19... in everyone, hasn't he? Yeah, Since Rushmore. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, and I think it was because he got COVID or something. That's why he, he didn't make it or, or something like that. Um, and apparently this is actually the second time that Steve Carell has taken over the role of Murray. Apparently he was um, going to be – it was actually Bill Murray who was going to be uh, in Little Miss Sunshine, not Carell. Really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's – because that kind of made Carell, I yeah, think. Yeah, and but, it's interesting thinking yeah. about those two as interchangeable actors because they seem very different to me. But uh, I, yeah. I don't see them as – yeah, no, I think mm. they're very different performers. Mm. Carell's a, a much warmer performer. Yes, yeah. he is. I mean, I love Bill Murray, but, but 
yeah, I think Carell is a more empathetic performer by a long shot. I think Carell's got great range as well. But I actually really loved um, seeing Jason Schwartzman in in Asteroid City in such a different role. When thinking back to Bottle Rocket, yeah, it was such. A, I, I mean, I, obviously it's a different role, but I actually love it as a thinking of it as him maturing. Um, mm. You know, he was a teenager basically when he was doing Bottle Rocket, wasn't he? An unknown. Yeah. Was, yeah. And so really interesting just seeing that that huge shift over this, and obviously he's a he's another one of um, Wes Anderson's just regular one regular, of the regular circus. Team. Yeah. <laughs> Well, look, it, uh, it's a more serious, deeper mm. film. I think the underlying themes in this film are mm. actually, um, you know, I think a lot of Wes Anderson's films do have a real melancholic undertone yes. to them. I mean, you got that from The Royal Tenenbaums, which is still possibly his best film. But, um, for, for, sorry, I shouldn't say it. It's possibly still my favourite film, <laughs> along with... Um, uh, I gave you a look, that's yeah, why like, you... careful. <laughs> I personally, that and Grand Budapest Hotel are my two favourites. I really love yeah. Grand Budapest Hotel. I um I'm a bit of a I know it's it's a bit wanky to say Bottle Rocker, but Bottle Rocker honestly was my introduction. It's a pretty to, great uh, film. Yeah, I love the <laughs> I love the rough edges, which yeah. is not what Anderson is usually uh, you know associated yeah. with, and. There, there's something, and you touched upon the Wes Anderson style. I mean, you've got like AI creating Wes Anderson style, which you could, you know, I don't know how he feels about it, but it, oh, there is. I, a, I know how I feel about it. Yeah, but just... the, but it is kind of interesting where you can get an auteur style just defined, and I think he yeah, has such yeah. a distinctive style. Yeah. Like you said before, if you don't like that style, you probably will not like this film. I would. Yeah, it's go sort with... of redundant to weigh in if you already dislike yeah, the style. Yeah, yeah. I I feel as though I have waned. My my love of Wes Anderson has waned quite a lot from my twenties to now. I've gone up and down depending mm. on the film for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not. A, I wouldn't. I don't think of myself as a Wes Anderson fan, but yeah. then I look at his filmography and I'm actually quite surprised by how many of his films I do really like. Yeah, the things I really love about his style and his approach to filmmaking is he's so precise mm. and that is a really lovely thing to watch on screen. I love the fact that there's this perfection with the angles and and with you know all the details into the art design. Like I love all of that, the colour palette, that sort of stuff. I could just go on about forever. Having said that, I don't love – and this, again, is going back to your earlier point about, like, it, you know, um, having attacking Anderson on things that are just, like, not him. But I do find just that flatness – I find I just find it really hard to engage with some of the topics because this is a film about grieving. It's a mm, film about mm. loss and longing. There's some – some beautiful performances in this. I really love Scarlett Johansson in this film as Midge Campbell, who um, the character is kind of based on Marilyn Monroe, which might be an obvious um, reference, but I think that she is just fantastic on screen and she delivers the lines, comic lines as well. I, I mean, I've Perfect always time. adored <laughs> Scarlett Johansson yeah. and I think her range is fantastic. She really is, yeah. And she just works. I'm always delighted by how certain actors somehow work in a Wes Anderson yeah. film because you do think... Bill Murray, Jason Schwartzman, those kind of actors. Yeah. But you know, seeing someone like Tom Hanks yeah. really thrive and do See, well with this material. And he's another one of my favourite characters in this. I think Tom Hanks mm. brings brings that to it because there is this flatness and it's like he can't not emote. <laughs> he reminds me of Gene Hackman, actually, in the yeah. Royal Tenenbaums. And it's yeah. similar characters, a sort of harsh, are, older patriarch yeah. who, who mellows a bit. Yeah. Um, I always find with the Wes Anderson films, because they do very deliberately create a sense of distance, mm. it's always interesting to see, do we reach a point where I start to feel something more? Because mm. he, 
you know, he, he makes it hard for himself to get an yeah. emotional response. And when so when it does happen, mm. and it often takes me by surprise, I'm really delighted. Mm. And for about three quarters of this film, I was wondering, am I ever going to really have an emotional connection with this film? And I got it towards the end. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. and actually Margot Robbie's scene was really, really moving yeah, for me. I was yeah. actually, it really crept up on me. And I... Yeah. I yeah, I think this is one of my preferred of his later films. That's so interesting. See, I uh, just to go back a step. I really did not like French Dispatch at all. Okay, the yeah. elements that I like. That's the thing with all these films. I like elements of it. Yeah. But I really didn't like that. And this kind of, if you didn't like that, I think you probably won't like this because it's more in that that line of inquiry. He's definitely leaning more into this kind of flatness and thinking about artifice, like you said, mm. and thinking more about the construct. Um, I didn't enjoy this, but I'm, I'm thinking part of my brain is like I do I do enjoy it from a film nerd perspective, but I don't enjoy it as a viewer. I think what – and again, what I really appreciated is the homages are quite aggressive in this yes. film. So the two <laughs> things he's referencing is 1950s science fiction cinema, which was all heavily about symbolism and, mm. and what – what characters of authority meant, what outsiders meant, what mm. aliens meant, how this commented on the massive upheavals in society that were happening in American 50s, whether yeah. it was the rise of the teenager, the fear of immigration, fear of communism. Yeah. Um, and so 50s science fiction cinema is all over that in fascinating mm. ways. But it also contrasts with the kind of New York theatre scene, which was all about the method. Yeah. And it was all about yeah. making it real and bringing realism to theatre. And so these two kind of ideas clashing together but they're both forms of expression and understanding the world that is, by default, artificial. And they're mm. both from the 50s, which are notorious for being a repressed era. Yes. And this film is all about repressed emotions. It's all about people who aren't grieving properly over death and loss because they're trying to be good family people and keep a stiff upper lip and keep the family unit together when they should be breaking down in, yeah. in, 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 in tears. Thomas, you're doing that thing that we were chatting about off air about convincing me. <laughs> Am I, I convincing you? I came yes. into this studio tonight being like, I really hated Asteroid City and now I'm like, oh, that is good. <laughs> but I, I'm not sure. I'm not completely convinced, but I do take your point. So there are lots to explore in this and lots of really um, clever play of references made, but I don't know if it worked for me, but... It's not going to... Yeah, look, I totally get it's not going to work for many people. And Mm. I also like French Dispatch, and I think you're right. You're either going to like both these films or not. Mm. So I... I, Yeah. Well, It'll I allow my... my my complaint is I, I wouldn't want people to dismiss this film as yeah. meaningless or empty. And I have yeah. seen a few people say it's just more Wes Addison fluff. It's just all on the surf, and it's like no, no. I think there's a point to everything in here. Whether it connects with you and you like it mm. or not is a different question, and absolutely legitimate question. Mm. But I don't think you can dismiss this as being a meaningless, empty film. I think you're right with that. For sure. Well, if you do want to make up your own mind, Wes Anderson's Asteroid City is playing at all independent and major cinemas here in Australia. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Thomas Caldwell and myself, Flick Ford. Anyhow, uh, it is now time for our third and final film. Zachary Wiggins' Sanctuary is about a final session between professional dominatrix Rebecca, played by Margaret Qualley, and her client Hal, Christopher Abbott, who is the successor to his father and about to become CEO of a large unnamed company. 
Actually, it's a named company, but (laughs) it's not relevant who the company is. So the entire film takes place in Hal's apartment and the film was actually shot in 19 days, which is remarkable uh, as far as the shooting schedule goes. Yeah, wow. Uh, There are very few other actors on screen, aren't there? Yeah, I was thinking about that. There's a person, I think, who tries to come into the lift. Um, But, yeah, for the most part, over the hour and a half, it just features those those two actors, Mm. Quali and and Abbott. Really interesting. That setup reminded me a bit of Tape. Do you remember that? With uh, Ethan Hawke and... Oh, the Richard um, Linklater film. Yeah, Uma Thurman. Yeah, really underappreciated film. It really is. And I was thinking about this um, with the setup. Grande is the other one I thought of. Yeah, Yeah. And, and that idea... Idea of um, the the limitations of a space can really add to tension and to to um, just where, where you're going to go with that because you're like what's going to happen inside this room yes, <laughs> and yes, and yes, tape yes. definitely had that for me I love tape I think it's one of um, like you said an unappreciated film and I felt I kind of was excited to watch Sanctuary for that same reason I thought it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out from the trailer it looked like it was just going to be um, very claustrophobic. It was hard to know what genre this fits into. Mm-hmm. I think most reviews have referred to it as a psychological thriller. Mm. I think that it's it's aiming for something a bit lighter than that and and not very um, – there's not that much tension, I thought. But what are your thoughts, though, Thomas? I – look, I – again, this is the film. And more, the more I think about it, the more I really like it. I think this is a very playful kind of – dramedy comedy Mm. drama and it's a bit of a love story and it's also in its own way and it's it's a really great film about sex and it really draws attention to the fact that we don't get many good films about sex anymore i I kept on thinking about secretary that fantastic yes 2002 film with maggie gillenhall which was um james spade yeah of course yeah yeah, who is you know that was his thing wasn't it for a while doing films about sex and Mm. how how you could make a film that explored the dynamic of a relationship through sexual encounters. And both those films are also similar because they're, they're both sort of about a sadomasochistic type relationship. Yeah, yeah. And both films respect that relationship. You know, sadomasochism, like many other kinks in cinema, are often played for laughs or it's seen as something deviants do or it's mm. yeah or, or to be mocked and both those films very much take it as part of the flow of this is how these characters characters express themselves and because it's a particular form of expression there's complexity so mm. there is a lot of stuff about who has the power here how is that working mm. and again we spoke about this with both films actually that we've covered already tonight this idea of what is real and what is artificial because yes. what point are they playing out a script and what point are they going off script? I mean, they, they, they literally talk about the script they're meant to stick to with yeah. this kind of fantasy role play. And and I quite enjoyed, enjoyed trying to second guess at some points, hang on, is this meant to mm. be part of their routine mm. or has it gone off the rails? And well, apparently that, that was fun. Yeah, well, apparently that meta element to it, because, again, it's like actually all three films are a bit yeah. meta in different ways. What's that side of the frame? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so apparently that was uh, unintentional. So uh, Wigan um, worked on this. Uh, it was the, the script was actually written by um, Mika Bloomberg and they didn't realise until afterwards and they started to do the press for the film that they're like, oh, this is actually about acting and performance and the whole talk about the script. We hadn't actually – it hadn't occurred to us <laughs> until we came to talk about it and, yes, that's what it's about. Oh, that's kind of wild. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I think it's – I mean, it's very clear to me that that is what the film is about. Um, I. It's interesting you touched upon the the nature of the relationship between Rebecca and uh, Hal uh, is 
dominatrix to to slave or to sub, whatever, however you want to phrase it. But it's also a transactional, it is a paid, you know, sex work. Um, so there's that element to it as well. I did also think of other films like Secretary um, from whatever year that was, 2002. 2002, yeah, it seems yeah. like a long time ago um, now. And I also was reminded but not in that it's anything like this, but Peter Strickland's Duke of Burgundy occupies a really similar space in this kind of um, dom-sub relationship um, between two women. I absolutely love Duke of Burgundy. It probably is one of my favourite films of all time, possibly, up there. Oh, wow, okay. Um, And I think that both Duke of Burgundy and Secretary do an amazing job of talking about different... Uh, relationships that people have um, in sex and how how people are sexual. I didn't find uh, sanctuary. Sanctuary. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't find it sexy at all for a film that's about a sexual relationship Um, and I didn't find it – yeah, I suppose that maybe that's good for listeners to know that I don't know that people will – find it that sexy potentially but it does sort of explore this relationship I felt maybe the writer I don't know enough about Mika Bloomberg but I felt like perhaps he doesn't um he's not connected to sex work because it felt like it was very much written from someone outside of that industry um who maybe you know like there's sometimes something of a caricature of how Rebecca is presented that it didn't for me ring that true um i thought that the casting was excellent like i really love margaret qualley she is andy mcdowell's daughter we would have last seen her and andy in fact in made i don't know if you saw that tv series no i'm behind the last thing i saw her her in was stars at noon i was going to make the joke that this is the best film i've seen about sex since stars at noon Um, so, she, yeah. She's sort of the James Spader of this generation, actually, because, you know, she began Nymphomaniac, I think, was her first big film. Oh, she, of course. She's not afraid to do yeah. these really exposed, bold films yeah. about desire and, and lust and love. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I find her magnetic. I, she's one of my favourite actors to see on screen at you the moment. You need to see Maid then. Because okay. I, I wasn't uh, swept up in Maid, but her performance is so good that I was like watched, I like binge watched it. I highly, highly recommend oh, checking it out. Absolutely. Because she, she has so much range and she's such a young actor, but she has so much range. Mm. And it was lovely seeing her acting opposite her mother. Like it's just remarkable. And yes, highly recommend Maid. I think we have spoken about it on the show, either that or I've just spoken to, at people about that show. Um, but sorry, sanctuary is what we're here to discuss. I, I yeah, I'm just going to say I do agree with you. Now I think about it, that it, it look it probably isn't the most in depth look at what a sex worker would actually mm. do. I mean, I, I don't know if that's really the the purpose of the film. No. But again, you compare it to something like Leo Grande, which I. Like that was top mm. ten for me last year. I think yeah. that captured that transactional relationship with such depth and humanity. Mm. God, that was a great film. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- 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 this is sort of a slight step down from things like mm. that and, and, and Secretary and other films like it. Mm. But I think I just enjoyed the gleefulness and the playfulness. It is very playful. And I think there's a lightness in tone that when people are like, oh, it's a psychological thriller, I think don't go in there with that. It's mindset. not a psychological no, thriller. No, it's not. No. I think people just go based on the trailer, which is when you listen to the music. I think they're deliberately choosing that music and – Mika Bloomberg actually comes, I think, from a sound background. Uh, and I don't know much about the director, um, Zachary Wigan, but I, I, they're not 
this is just his second feature film. Mm. The first one was Heart Machine from 2014. I don't so, even know that. No. No. So I think that they're – it kind of feels like an early film, but I, I'm kind of excited to see if they do decide to work together again mm. as director-writer, what they come up with. And, look, and again, I, I just – you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed, but I <laughs> – I've listened recently to Karina Longworth's fantastic podcast series about, yeah, the erotic 90s and before the erotic yeah. 80s and, and just the general conversation about this weird puritanism that's yeah. entered a lot of film discourse, especially on Twitter and TikTok. And, you know, every day there seems to be some tweet saying, you know, you shouldn't put sex scenes in films unless they drive the plot or people saying they will never drive the plot. There's no point in them. Really? And I'm a big fan of visual pleasure yeah, of all yeah. types. I love a gratuitous sex scene. We need more. So... <laughs> And this is an example, though, of a film where yeah. sex is not gratuitous. It is the driving force. Yeah. And, and humans do relate in this way. And it's, it's so exciting and interesting to, to, to watch. Yeah. No, I, I'm all for a good sex scene. I think that I was surprised that this wasn't as sexy as the yeah, trailer leads on. I agree. There's nothing yeah. particularly vicarious or thrilling in no. this film, unlike something like Stars at Noon, which is a wild film in all the best possible ways. And I think that there can be – it's strange that – it's really interesting thinking about that puritanism mm. around sex. On, I mean, I think about that film um, Nine Songs. Do you remember that? Where it's yeah, literally just I, sex scenes. And I like that. I, I was in the minority for quite liking that. Yeah, yeah, and it's a shame that there is that kind of discomfort around it because I think when it's done well – and it doesn't actually need to show anything. And I think some of the most erotic films are actually ones in which it's just suggestion for a lot of it. Um, but anyway. Yeah, I, I I think Sanctuary, it isn't that for me, um, but I didn't dislike it. And I'm still trying to work my head around it because I think the performance, particularly by Quali, is so strong. I think Christopher Abbott, he's a little bit one note for me, but I don't mind him on screen. I was about to say, he is a little one note, but I like that note. Yeah. I mean, I think I first noticed him in Girls, um, yes. the, the TV yeah. show that is. Um, also in Possessor, which is one of my yeah, favourite films. That I was, love that one. That was a, that's a masterpiece of a film, isn't And he's it? great in that because his blankness, it kind yeah. of works very well. And I think it does work well here. I just He gets out-acted by Quali. I think so. But he has got a kind of likeable, sleazy edge to yeah. him, which makes – he's going to be a really good character actor, I think. Yeah, and he's got this kind of role where you sort of – you really like watching him, but you're also yeah. thinking, yeah, something I don't know about you, dude. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I, the casting is great. The script is actually pretty decent as well. Yeah. Um, I just – I don't know. I wasn't – it's like a three stars for me maybe. Oh, look, I gave it a three and a half. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. It, it's that kind of film. But I, I, I didn't feel like I'd wasted my time watching it where no. I, I – often do with films on that range. Mm, agree. I'm glad and, I saw this. Yes, me too. Uh, and if you'd also like to check it out, Sanctuary is currently playing in select cinemas. On tonight's show, we discuss Heiner Palmerson's Godland, a powerful drama about the psychological undoing of a Danish priest who's sent to build a church in a remote region of Iceland. Next, we reviewed the star-studded cast of Wes Anderson's stargazing Asteroid City, Featuring basically everyone except Bill <laughs> all, Murray. All of the above, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and we finished up the hour with Margaret Qualley and Christopher Abbott as master and slave in Zachary Wiggins' Sanctuary. All the all three films are playing uh, in cinemas here in Australia. And you can listen back to tonight's episode on the Triple R website, rrr.org.au or subscribe to our podcast. And big thank you to Maya Rizki, who uh, edits the podcast and also helps out with the socials. 
Um, before we sign off, Thomas, it's been a pleasure chatting film with you. Thank you for having me once again. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. I hope people listening did too. Yeah, and we, we covered, what was it, religion, sex and death. We did religion, <laughs> death and sex. Death and yep. sex, sorry. Get, get the right order. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 